1144, in a forested area known as Mousehold Heath, near Norwich, England, the mutilated body of a 12-year-old boy was found. The murder victim, known as William of Norwich, became the focus of a cult started by the local clergy. He also became the motivation for the persecution of the local Jewish community, who were blamed for his murder. The justification for this was an ancient slander which continues to this very day, the blood libel. Hi, this is Michael Allison. Welcome to the podcast about everything. Uh, welcome to today's show. A uh, bit of a disclaimer. We have some subject matter today that those of you who are extremely squeamish probably won't want to hear. And so just be warned that today's topic matter uh, deals with such unpleasantries as uh, warfare between religions, uh, social warfare, genocide, and the slaughter and sacrifice of babies. So with that out of the way, um, I just want to say once in a while you get, you're lucky enough to run into people that you just have a natural ability to converse with. And today's guest on the, on the show is one of those people that fortunately entered my life and we, I greatly enjoy talking to her and she seems to enjoy talking to me. So today's guest is Rabbi Audrey Karatkin and uh, she's going to tell us a little bit about herself. So Audrey, tell the folks at home, what's your story? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. Um, we have had conversations about a lot of things over the years, but killing and eating babies isn't one of them. So, you know, it's a really different direction for our conversations. Yes. Um, I am the rabbi of Temple Beth Israel in Altoona, Pennsylvania. I've been there for over a decade now. And uh, my husband and I live just outside of Altoona. Uh, he is, we're sort of in the middle. He's from Western Pennsylvania. I'm from Eastern Pennsylvania. And so we're, we're kind of in the middle and, uh, and close as we can be to family. I am very involved, as you know, because that's how we met in um, interfaith activities, true interfaith um, and learning about each other's belief systems um, and, and drawing and creating respect in the greater community for that, we hope. And so I, I do a lot of teaching in the community, a lot of listening in the community. And, um, and I'm really interested to have this conversation to sort of let people know that a lot of what they're hearing and seeing in the world these days has very ancient roots that go back um, really to the origins of what we understand as, as Judaism today. Well, 
That's exactly right. And as you know, from listening, our podcast, one of the things we like to deal with is folklore. And all of that's very, very ancient. And many of these stories that we continue to tell, not only to build ourselves up, but to despair, especially to disparage others, um, are very ancient. So let's get into this conversation about the blood libel. Um, I'll start my earliest record of this. I did some research, of course, uh, hard to believe I know from some of the listeners, but I actually do research. And um, the earliest record I found of the conspiracy, uh, and it's a conspiracy theory, it was used by the Romans against the early Christian cult. And then about within 20 years of that, we have the earliest record I could find of it being directed specifically against the Jews. Um, do you have earlier versions than that? Oddly enough, I do. Uh, there is a version of the blood libel that actually goes back to pre-Christian times, to pre-Christian um, Roman times. Um, it is recorded in the first century by a Jewish historian who went by the name of Flavius Josephus, obviously not a Jewish name, uh, but rather well, he sounds, a Hellenized uh, name. Yeah, he sounds a little Greek. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, well, it's very interesting. Flavius Josephus um, really gives us on-site uh, recording of what was going on at a very important time in, Ju in Judaism, which was the first century, uh, the destruction of the temple, uh, the overtaking of Judaism and Jerusalem by Romans, uh, and the dispersion of the Jewish community in Jerusalem, which had a great impact on the future of the Jewish nation and, and Judaism as a, as, a faith, um, as a faith going forward. Um, and so this is pre-Christian times. And Josephus, as you could tell from his name, um, was not anti-Hellenism or anti-Roman um, at, at heart. He believed that he actually could be a go-between and represent the Jewish community to the Roman authorities in a way that would grant Jews uh, respect. But there was one guy who really annoyed him, and it was a, a guy named Appion, who wasn't even in the land of Israel. Um, he was a Hellenized Egyptian scholar and a virulent Jew hater. Um, and he had charged the Jews with kidnapping a Greek fattening him up for a year, and then conveying him to a forest where they offered his body as a sacrifice, ate his internal organs, and then burned the rest of the body while swearing an oath of eternal hatred toward all Greeks. Um, that is the first time that we have. There's actually also another otherwise unknown Greek named Democritus who once wrote that every seven years, the, very similar, the Jews catch a stranger whom they offer as a sacrifice, tearing his flesh into shreds. So those wow. are the only two instances that we know of by a Greek or Roman pagan author uh, in these pre-Christian times. Although obviously they probably, these stories probably sound very familiar because as we know, these same images and these same theories and these same accusations pop up later on in history. Well, and as I mentioned in the intro, uh, poor little w William of Norwich and some of the other children in, an, in the next century 
that were found murdered uh, and often found in a forest um, were basically uh, tied into the blood libel. So mm -hmm. there you go. Um, and of course, you know, we have we have fairy tales about abandoned children and gruesome things happening to them. Uh, a lot of those come out of uh, Eastern France and the central portion of Germany, like what we now know as Hansel and Gretel, you know, was a metaphor for the time when people were starving, they had large family. And so the youngest who were the least likely to be able to take care of themselves were often taken out into the forest and abandoned in the hope that someone would come along and take them in and take care of them, take pity on them. And yeah, you know, the Wicked Witch and the Gingerbread came much later, but we have a lot of stories like this just in folklore that seem to underpin this somewhat. Well, we do. And again, there is a Jewish antecedent for that. Although it, the, the versions that we know are not actually attributed to Jews per se, not long after Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, which is uh, which took place in 395. We have a fifth century Christian historian, oddly named Socrates, um, who accuses Jews of hanging a Christian child on a cross until he died during the festival of Purim. Now Purim is not a holiday that is specified in the Torah, in the five books of Moses. It comes from the story of Esther, a nice Jewish girl who becomes the queen of Persia, um, battles the, the wicked vizier Haman and ends up saving all the Jews. Yay, as, they, as, as we put it in a very uh, succinct way, they tried to kill us, we won, let's eat. Um, and, <laughs> Um, and, and it's masks, it's, it's like Mardi Gras and uh, the wildest, you know, drinking party that you can imagine, costumes and all that sort of thing. Um, so it's a wild and wooly holiday anyway. And so it seems like this is um, a time when it would be obvious, you know, to some people that, yeah, that's kind of how, how Jews get their kicks, you know, that's one of the things that they do. Of course, you know, we know that even during Roman times, Jews did not use um, a cross <laughs> or right. hanging people on a cross as a, a, a crucifixion as a way of killing people anyway. That wasn't a Jewish form of, of capital punishment. Wasn't that um, the Roman punishment for treason basically it was the roman punishment for treason that's exactly yeah, that's right yeah. uh and and it that gets a little muddled in uh in jewish history in about the third fourth century mm. um but you know this this idea started swirling in later times around western europe during that four, four week interval between purim and our, the festival Passover, that somehow Jews crucified living children and at some point began to drink the victim's blood. And that's wow. where you get into this children and the blood libel and the connection with Passover. Yeah, we, we know that, um, as a matter of fact, we did a podcast talking about the uh, winter holidays uh, right up and to including and after Christmas. Uh, and all of these winter holidays especially midwinter and moving towards spring often involve 
mummery. They involve dressing up in costumes and making a lot of noise and waking up the neighbors and a lot of drinking and eating, of course, you know. Um, but none of them, I mean, there are, there are wise children who might be selected as the full, uh, full emperor who would rule for one night or something like that. But no crucifixion of children, no kitties having their blood drunk. Um, what is the business with drinking blood? I mean, that's like vampires and things. Well, it is, but it goes back to the, the basic tenet of Christianity. It's, you see this especially in the book of John, where Jesus as a figure, as the Christ figure, who's being sacrificed by his father, um, becomes what they call the Lamb of God. And for Christians, this replaces the sacrifice that Jews make um, at Passover in those ancient times, where they would take a one-year-old lamb, pure, you know, no, no marks on the lamb, would, would sacrifice them on the altar at the temple in Jerusalem, um, and, you know, and cook and eat the flesh. And so the idea is that, that Jesus becomes the Lamb of God. Jesus becomes essentially, in, in the book of John especially, and thereafter becomes like the taking the place of the Paschal sacrifice. Mm. Um, and what happens then is that Jews become identified as the Christ killers, as the ones who led to the crucifixion of Jesus. And because the, the death of Jesus is shown as the crucifixion, especially you see this in Catholic churches still with the, the blood coming down mm -hmm. where he's been nailed to the cross and then where his, his flesh is opened up with the, the sword of a Roman warrior. Mm -hmm. um, and you see depictions of his followers trying to catch his blood in the chalice. Yes. Um, and, the and grail. So the grail, the holy yes. grail. The holy grail, yeah. And, and so because the depiction of Jesus on the cross and the bloodletting is so explicit, mm -hmm. it becomes merged with the official church doctrine that Jews were Christ killers. Okay. And so if Jews would go to the trouble of drawing Christ's blood, why wouldn't they in later times, again, reenact that by drawing the blood of children to make Passover matzah? Now, anybody who has eaten any matzah knows that it can't possibly have that much flavor in it. Uh, it's flour and water and yeah. it's baked into a cracker. Yeah, it's unleavened uh, bread, basically. It's unleavened bread, Taste. not unlike the Eucharist. Yeah, exactly. Which is where it came from. So, yeah. you know, the idea that somehow we bake matzah with children's blood, it just shows the basic ignorance oh, that's of, ludicrous. Yeah. Uh, of Christians but it also goes back to a base hatred. Even if they, even if they somehow have been told the truth, they are such believers in their theology, and and Christianity and Christendom is is so all encompassing to um, you know post Roman post pagan 
Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, and and Western civilization, Western Europe thereafter, because it's so all-encompassing, it just becomes part of what people are taught to believe generation after generation. And you can see, you know, at the time when Christianity was a cult religion entering the actual uh, center of the Roman Empire, which was Rome, uh, the people who were traditionalists would look at this and say, hey, these people are going around saying that they drink the blood and eat the flesh of God's son. And of course, the Romans had that wonderful story about satire, Saturn devouring his children, going mad and devouring his children. And um, that probably put two and two together and came out like 12 in the Roman mind, especially since they didn't like this idea of these and there were a lot of them, new cults coming into Rome, then people were starting to practice them. So that would be a pretty, it wouldn't be much of a stretch to use that against, you know, people that you were trying to uh, ostracize. Absolutely. Whoever the other is, yeah. you can, you know, kind of uh, thematically tar and feather them with mm -hmm. things that, that you already know will terrify a population, will anger a population, and sure. will turn a population against another. And as, you'll, as, as we'll see in this conversation as it progresses, this is a theme, it's like a gong almost. It's a theme that's been struck again and again in different contexts uh, throughout modern history. Um, so, um, and, the, and of course it's caused waves of violence. We'll also see that because um, we've seen repeated, this repeated over and over again uh, in, prog in programs like the Russian pogroms against the Jews and of course the Holocaust. Well, and, and, and so that's why it's really important for people to understand that what we see as say 19th, 20th, 20th, first century phenomena actually go back 2000 years. Yeah. That, that the circumstances may change, but the tropes stay the same. Mm -hmm. um, this idea of, of shedding someone else's blood for your own blood lust, which doesn't exist. In Judaism, I mean, you go back to the book of Genesis and we are prohibited from eating even when we are given meat to eat, it has to be devoid of its blood. You know, when when we produce, um, when kosher butchers produce kosher meat, they, they soak it, they salt it, they drain it so that there isn't blood in it. Um, you, you can't, you know, cook meat rare. It, you, you have to draw the blood out of it. Yeah. Um, and, and so, the kosher laws and going back to the, the early explanations of humanity in Genesis, you know, really guide um, Jewish eating habits. And so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, ripping some, including ripping flesh, anything that's torn is, is considered unfit for consumption. So all of these things, you know, make these allegations completely, you know, it's what we would call nourish kite complete yeah. nonsense yeah um but that word. doesn't yeah it i love yiddish because it's it, it sounds like what it is yeah so narish kite mm -hmm. is complete nonsense 
And yet, because these tropes are so ingrained in communities, going back for generation after generation, it's pretty hard to, um, for truth to win out against those embedded um, stereotypes and fears. Yeah, and, and plus, on top of it all, this thing begins to act like a complete conspiracy too, that there is, it, it's not just isolated in one village or in one country, but it becomes ultimately some sort of worldwide conspiracy. You know, with the Rothschilds, the Illuminati, all these international conspiracies involving Jewish bankers. I mean, not to jump ahead, but a personal story I have. When I was a teenager, about a million years ago, um, our neighborhood had a clique of John Birch Society members, and they were spreading these ideas under the fear of communism. Now, they never uttered the word Jew, but when you started looking at who was responsible for the banking conspiracies that seduced our presidents into becoming active members of the communist parties, um, it was a Jewish banking conspiracy, you know, and there you go. So, and, and, and there's this whole thing about money too involved in this. Well, it, there's a lot going, first of all, let's go back to the conspiracy, the idea of the conspiracy theory. Um, a, a, probably the most preeminent uh, historian of the Holocaust, Deborah Lipstadt, um, identified this violence against Jews as, as a political choice or as a, a practical choice. Going back to the early Christians, they argued that, you know, they repudiate that Jews repudiated Christianity because of their inherent maliciousness. That is the word, that's the phrasing they used. This formulation rendered Judaism more than just a competing religion. It became a source of evil. Mm -hmm. Judaism is inherently evil and therefore Jews inherently collectively promote evil and promote uh, whatever they can in terms of these, um, these worldwide plans to destroy international Christianity, especially where it is white European Christianity. And, and, and so what that means is the Jews ultimately, in the eyes of many people, are the ones who are ultimately responsible for all the evil in the world. Mm -hmm. And it starts, of course, with killing the Christian savior. Right. And it morphs into not just the blood libels, but other conspiracy theories of, as well that have to do with basically death and destruction. And so you get the Rothschilds and more recently George Soros, who are international bankers. Well, the reason that Jews went into banking in the first place is because in the Middle Ages under Western Christendom, Jews were prohibited from doing a lot of things. They couldn't hold civil service jobs. They couldn't serve the government, often couldn't serve in the military. Uh, they couldn't own property. They couldn't hold title to property. And in many cases, Jewish communities needed a charter from the local feudal lord um, in, in order to live someplace. So they were wow. very restricted in where they could live and what they could do for a living. And so, just, you know, 
kind of out of hat, the Lords decided, well, you know what? We should make the Jews do the things that we don't think Christians should do. So they can sell liquor and they can exchange money, lend money and collect my taxes for me. Uh-huh. Because, because Jews, well, Jews couldn't do anything else. Right. They couldn't work the land. They couldn't become civil servants. But those were the two things, of course, that got them into trouble. Mm-hmm. They were forced into it. And then they were told, oh, well, you Jews, you know, you're trying to destroy Christianity on so many levels. You're just, you're destroying Christian life as we know it. Um, and then they, they became the, uh, the focus, the attention and the victims of these, um, well, before they were called pogroms, um, but going back over a thousand years in the Christian world, uh, starting with the Crusades and then moving onward from that. Yeah, the, the Jews were, as you said, not allowed to own property and frequently to be near any center of trade, which would be back then a walled city-state. Um, they literally had to build huts and places to live outside the city walls. So if there was ever a war, they'd be wiped out immediately. Uh, but they were also put there with the other undesirables, the the practitioners of magic, um, certain types of doctors uh, who were you know, using herbs and things like that, uh, prostitutes. All these people were shoved outside the city walls and uh, ghettoized. Uh, and that, I think, is the origin of that whole concept, um, is Absolutely. shoving people outside the walls of the city to, you know, let them, whatever happened to them happens. Well, and, and what happened was that, of course, the lords turned on them mm-hmm. that when they had to have a contract with these feudal lords. Part of it was a contract of protection because they knew that the, the illiterate Christian masses um, were fearful of them to begin with. You know, these yeah. all of these blood libel allegations always circulated in Christian communities. The lords were supposed to protect them, and in return, the Jews did their bidding for them, including things like tax collection. And when um, the um, when the Christian populations rose up, as happened in Norwich and in York and in other places in England and then throughout Europe, uh, the lords just abandoned them. Yeah. Um, either they let them into the walled city, into their palace, and the, let the Christians follow them, or they just lock them out, as you said, and let the mobs loose on them outside the walled city. Um, But the Jews took the brunt of that in in many situations. And then, of course, if there were any left, and and these were mass slaughters of hundreds of people at a time, um, if there were any left, then they were evicted. Uh, We were thrown out. We've been thrown out of some really nice places. Uh, We've been, you know, (laughs) twice out of England. Um, and of course, in the 15th century from Spain and Portugal, uh, 1492 is a big Columbus thing, but for us, it's the year that we were evicted from, from Spain and, yeah. uh, Portugal followed a couple of years later. And there were places around, um, especially in the Eastern parts of Europe that welcomed Jews because they wanted the, they wanted to be, these are places that wanted to be open up to trade, you know, mm-hmm. some of the, the, some of the Germanic states and, and in places even beyond that to the east. Um, and, but after a time, 
um, the Jews who had maybe been there for hundreds of years also then were pounced upon in later times. Yeah, yeah. So um, let's backtrack just a little bit because everybody knows what a jolly time the, the medieval period is. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a certain group of historical scholars who like to refer to it as the Dark Ages, but it was only dark, you know, if you were being victimized during that time period. It was actually a time when there was a lot of social change, you know, because post the fall of the Roman Empire, this is a time of the rebuilding or the, the creation, actually, of what would go on to become the modern European state. Uh, so, you know, you have city states, but eventually they're going to turn into countries as the people in the various cities work out their differences. And um, uh, it's a time of turmoil, of upheaval. It's a time of a great deal of migration, as you already said. And it wasn't just the Jews. It was a lot of people changing areas, avoiding wars, uh, avoiding different types of persecution. And um, then there was that other little event going on throughout that period, um, that fun jaunt to the Middle East called the Crusades. Uh, <laughs> and maybe you have some things to say about that too. Well, of course the Crusades um, were made famous by, you know, Richard the Lionheart. And, you know, it was, it was supposed to be the triumph of Christianity over um, Islam. Right. Uh, the Muslim aggressors who had taken over uh, Jerusalem, which of course was thought of as, a, as the birthplace of Christianity and not the birthplace of what we know as, as, as Judaism, you know, as, as mm -hmm. a nation. Mm -hmm. And so here come the crusaders in, you know, 1096, and they are marching from Western Europe eastward to free Jerusalem from the, the grip of Islam. They made a little detour. They made a detour into the Rhineland where there were some really prosperous Jewish communities that were, they, nobody was bothering anybody. The Jews had lived there for quite a while. They lived um, in concert with their Christian neighbors. This wasn't a place necessarily of, you know, pogroms and, and, and overt hatred. Um, and, and there were a number of uh, prominent Jewish communities in Worms, in Speyer, in, in places like that in the Rhineland. The marching, the Christian, you know, onward Christian soldiers came marching in and um, absolutely devastated the Jewish communities and slaughtered unknown numbers of Jews just because they were Jews and they were there. Yeah. Um, and, and for no reason, I mean, the Jews hadn't done anything to them. Mm -hmm. The Jews were just living there and, right. you know, trying to make a living. But because, again, their thought process was that, you know, Jews are inherently evil and Jews are also out to destroy Christianity. Well, we'll just wipe out the Jews here on our way to wiping out the Muslims. And that's what they did. And wow. this, uh, this actually, the persecution went on for the first several crusades. This went on for a period of about 200 years and, and, and had a devastating, you know, when you think about the Holocaust and the millions, 
you know, take away the the instruments of mass destruction and mass murder. And it, this is basically a microcosm of what would happen later on. Whatever instruments they had, they used to slaughter these Jewish communities. And they came back year after year, you know, crusade after crusade. And this was like a stop on the tour on their way to on their way to, to, to Jerusalem. Wow. And of course, we know also another fun thing that happened during the Middle Ages, besides the Crusades and some of these massacres, was a different type of massacre because it was also the time of the bubonic plague sweeping into Europe. And there were several different versions of that plague came over the years. And um, that certainly decimated the population as well. And I wonder if anybody got blamed for that since the germ theory of, of disease is fairly recent discovery. Well, so here's the thing about, as I mentioned about anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism, Jew hatred is basically not just a hatred, it is a vast conspiracy theory mm -hmm. that Jews conspire against the Christian world, the white Christian world to, um, to dispossess it. Mm -hmm. and to destroy it by any means possible. Um, and so, of course, Jews were blamed for poisoning the wells that Christians used, um, which, of course, was, was the source of a lot of the bubonic plague, the rats carrying it you know, through these, sure. um, these cities. But the Jews were blamed. The Jews, again, were, were murdered in large numbers. Um, but, of course, the Jews... I mean, obviously we know they had nothing to do with it, but, but considering the fact that Jews lived separately, they, they probably didn't have access to the same wells that the Christians did. Those were in Christian communities, right? right. Jews lived completely, as you said, ghettoized lives. They had to create um, their own way of, of living and their own institutions. And, and they were prohibited from accessing anything pretty much in, for the most part in, um, in Christian communities. But again, when you're trying to explain the unexplainable, like a plague that has decimated what a third of the population, um, Jews come up over and over again in history. It's a straightforward way to explain seemingly inexplicable bad things that happen like pandemics mm -hmm. not just hundreds of years ago either no i know <laughs> as we will get to we'll I get think. to that yeah um so let's just jump ahead a little bit in time to what you know i don't know how you were taught history but i was taught that you, know, you went from the dark ages to the time of enlightenment, the, the Renaissance, where knowledge was rediscovered and all the good stuff happened, you know, the beautiful frescoes and paintings and statuary and things like that, because it was rediscovery of Greek knowledge and all that kind of stuff. Um, so you might think that since everyone's becoming more aware that scapegoating is going to stop a little bit. I'm guessing... But no, no, um, because along with this, these city states were continuing to battle with each other, but some of them were making alliances to enlarge portions of territory to become countries 
so for example, in Germany, what we now call Germany, which didn't exist until the mid 1800s, um, we have the Dukes of Saxony. And like any group of noblemen who kind of uh, wanted to be independent and not under the thumb of the Pope and under Rome, uh, the, this idea of reforming the Christian church became very attractive, especially the idea, oh, we can have a German Bible that stresses things that are important to us and is spoke and where German is spoken. So here comes Martin Luther. And he was partially financed by some of the Dukes of Saxony. Uh, in 1544, he published a pamphlet called On the Jews and Their Lies. I mean, he didn't start out like that, but it didn't take long. Uh, and that helped escalate the hatred of Jews in the German provinces. And once again, it encouraged just the average person to identify Jews and whenever possible to kill them. Well, and, and so what you see is that this inherent, um, this Jew hatred that becomes this conspiracy theory isn't limited to the Catholic Church. No. It's so ingrained in Christianity as a whole that, um, again, they are the perfect foils, the, the perfect um, uh, the perfect people to blame when things go wrong. Mm -hmm. um, or in, in, in Luther's case, he was kind of following um, what happened with what we know of Muhammad um, in creating mm -hmm. Islam. His, in, in, in originally way back, he had a good relationship with uh, the Jews of the Middle East, but yep. when they refused to follow him, when they refused to accept his doctrines, um, he turned against them and had, uh, and had them massacred. I, I understand that Martin Luther had this same idea that 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 he oh, he he alone could fix it that he could lure the Jews out of this rejection of Christ mm -hmm. and because of the doctrines that he was putting forth and his sort of ridding um, as as he wished to ridding Christianity of the 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 evil trappings of the Catholic Church that Jews would come along with him. And, and when they didn't, then he turned against them. Sure. I've got this great idea. All you have to do is accept it unconditionally. And you're in like Flynn. You're, you're, one, of my, you're one of my people. So, yeah. So the other thing, too, during this time period, you know, like I said, there was a lot of education, there's a lot of ferment, there's lots of things going on, a lot of societal changes. And one of the underlying themes that emerges very strongly, uh, much stronger than it had during the domination of the Pope and the Catholic Church, but under the Reformation, was the idea of magic. Uh, magic was seen not as something that you invoked through prayer, which the earliest grimoires and magic books were all written by Catholic clergy. Uh, and, and in Latin, grimoire comes from a word that means written in Latin. Uh, but these things filtered out so that anyone who did anything other, once again, would be suspect. So you have women or wise people or 
clever people, as they were sometimes called, who lived outside the village and who gathered herbs and may have worked as a midwife and that sort of thing um, and performed rituals to help with her healing ability. Suddenly, she's a witch. And the Jews, who are, you know, purportedly taking baby blood and baking it into matzos so that somehow they could magically regain the Holy Land and return home. Yeah, they're lumped in with that group too. Um, for And there was a great deal of importance and it's in both religious writings and other kind, but other kinds of uh, supernatural writings too, that parts of the human body have really powerful magic abilities. Um, blood and the fat of, especially of babies, because it's pure. Because and those things were called for in magical formulas, in alchemical formulas, trying to find the philosopher's stone. Sorry, Harry Potter fans, <laughs> but yeah. Um, and once again, along comes this blood libel, but now it's expanded. James the first of England, who's one of my favorite horrible kings among all the horrible kings of Europe everywhere, um, wrote a scientific treatise on black magic called demonology. And in it, he listed all these arcane practices um, because he was upset that some Scottish nationalists who didn't like him becoming the King of England and marrying, I think a princess from Denmark, um, horrors, uh, <laughs> claimed that they sent a sto magical storm to sink his ship, which almost actually happened. So he subsequently took it upon himself to slaughter them all to try but first he tried them and then he had them slaughtered um so you have the witchcraft trials now with the same sort of ideas behind it as the blood libel against the jews it, it it's the same trope that's just used against another group of people it's, people we it's, don't like. <laughs> whoever it is that we don't like at the time, we go back to the use of this in ancient times against Jews, but we bring it forward to use those same tropes, those same stereotypes, and invoke those same fears against whoever it is that we want to get rid of. Right, right. And we're writing all this stuff down finally, too. This isn't just high-minded stuff written in Latin. This is really horrible stuff. Uh, you have the Malus Malfactorum, which is the hammer of the witches, which was written in Germany by a couple of deranged monks. Uh, but you also have, I think this came out of Russia, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. You have another book or pamphlet or whatever it is called The Protocols of the Learned, of the Meetings of the Learned Elders of Zion. It's a little hard to get out. Um, okay, where did this come from? And how did this fit into the blood libel? So in, in Judaism, if you just call it the protocols, everybody knows what you're talking about because oh, I'm it's sure. so yeah. immensely famous. But I wanted well, to give so, the whole title. <laughs> yeah, well, again, you know, it again, coming out of the Middle Ages, as you said, you'd think that, you know, things would get better for people like Jews and other oppressed minorities, but no. It was just a, a new feeding ground for anti-Semitism to grow. 
Um, Jews, again, because they couldn't own property or hold certain positions, um, and because in feudal times they had been the money lenders, the tax collectors, the money changers, they now are seen because they go into international banking because it makes sense given what they have been doing for hundreds of years on behalf of the Christian lords. Mm -hmm. um, they are now accused now that they are becoming successful in banking and international trade, there's there's Jews everywhere, wherever they can set up shop and try to make a living, they do. So now, because they were forced into this, they are now, pe people will look at them and say, oh, well, these Jews, these globalists, whenever you hear the term globalist, it's, it's an anti-Semitic trope. They really mean those Jews, those international Jews. Mm -hmm. And the idea of the protocols, which were, a, 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 yes, a, a Russian fake that was, you know, basically outed before the turn of the century, before the turn of the 20th century, um, and found to be a fraud. Um, but it, it, even when it was found to be a fake, people have still believed it because of the basic idea that Jews are trying to control the world through international banking and commerce. Uh, this is the globalists who again are, are, are plotting to use international finance to upend and destroy the foundations of Christian society, but they're doing it behind the scenes. They're so clever, these Jews, that they're doing it behind the scenes and you can't really see it, but you know they're behind it. These evil Christ killers, you know, who have been at it for 2000 years, um, when you when you start with that premise, it's kind of a short step to to the protocols. And it, it sounds it, like uh, it sounds like a script for a comic book or for a really bad James Bond movie. Yeah. The international conspiracy of scheming Jewish people who, you know, are your friends, but you got to watch them because they're going to eat babies and they're going to take over the world you know um there you go yes and and so when you hear and of course the big banking the big jewish banking family of the time was the rothschilds yes and that's a name that you still hear oh, in yeah. in wackadoodle conspiracy theories mm -hmm. today which we'll talk about later but we'll get to but <laughs> but again it's that repeating trope over and over right. and over these people who spout about the Rothschilds, they don't even know who they are, but it's so ingrained in the anti-Semitic tropes that of course it just, it pops out. Yeah. And so, there were some, yeah. And, and, and as, as you are gonna, I, I think, you know, one of the things that, that we have talked about in the past is that, that there were some very, very prominent Americans. Oh who yeah. Even, even after this was found to be a fake, bought into it for their own purposes. Mm -hmm. And I'll just drop a name. Henry Ford, considered one of the great Americans, one of the great American industrialists, like the second coming of the industrialization of America. You know, he took a lot of different things. He took internal combustion engine from over here and a braking system from over there. And the idea of assembling things over and over again, repetitive task assembly of items on a, on a conveyor belt from someplace else. And he put it all together and he built the Ford Motor Company, which, you know, at that time was the largest 
automobile manufacturer in the world. Um, and he took this little village of Dearborn and turned it into a major city. Um, and as his, as his wealth spread and his ability to do more things, he wanted to influence people. Well, he did pay a good wage, though he was very anti-union. Uh, and I think during the same time period, there was a lot of fear after the First World War. You know, you had the Spanish flu, the First World War had ended. It was kind of a traumatic period for everybody. And here comes Henry Ford founding his own newspaper for his employees to read, uh, the Dearborn Independent. But it also became an outlet for something else because Henry Ford was deeply, deeply anti-Semitic. And uh, so he, printed, he got a hold of the protocols and printed thousands and thousands of copies. He transcribed it into his newspaper so that everyone would read it. And some of these sent these copies to universities, sent them to European universities, and reopened this trope again, like rubbing, finding a, a, a wound that had been formed a scar and scratching it open and then rubbing salt into it. That's what he did. Um, and this was a time when labor unions were considered to be, here's two really bad words, socialists and Bolsheviks. And for those who are too young to know what Bolsheviks, we're talking about commies, uh, basically. Um, and uh, so you have this tremendous time of upheaval. You have the rise of the second version of the Ku Klux Klan, which, if possible, is a thousand times worse than the first version. And um, Henry Ford and other le industrial leaders who also hated the idea of unionizing their labor force. We take good enough care of them. We don't need your influence fighting against people that they identified as the other and as communists, basically. And guess who that was? Well, it, it stands to reason that Jews would have been part of the, um, the forefront of unionism and of, of unity of working people. Mm -hmm. Again, because partly because the Jews that were coming out of uh, the Ru Russia and the, the Russian, st the states around Russia that were controlled by Russia, the Jews that were able to get out um, with, the, the irony is, of course, that Jews were persecuted by the Bolsheviks as well. Um, but um, but the Jews who were able to get out really believed in this this the power of the collective, mm -hmm. and really believed in in the power of people to better their lives if they worked together. And so it stands to reason that there would be Jews among those who were prominent in the labor movement at the beginning of the twentieth century. Um, they happened to be coming out of many of them coming out of um, Russia at the time of and right before and right after the revolution. And this was a terrifying thing. When you think, when you combine um, communism and Jews, like that's, that's double scary. And so even though the protocols had been um, already debunked, Henry Ford spent tremendous time and money promoting them. 
And, and again, there was this new wave of anti-Semitism um, that, that coalesced in, in, in upper society, mm-hmm. in wealth, in white wealthy society uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, and it wasn't just Henry Ford. You had uh, Thomas Edison. Uh, you had Charles Lindbergh. All of these great men, um, uh, brilliant, brilliant men who changed the face of, of life um, at the turn of the 20th century. Um, and and anti-Semitism was, was baked into this. Mm-hmm. Um, when we think of later on, uh, because they, this, this went from the time right after World War One to into the Nazi era that led to World War Two. Um, Henry Ford had a a sweet deal and a great relationship with the Nazis, and it 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 was not when we think of um, Nazi uh, supporters uh, as Jews, we think of Henry Ford providing Ford vehicles. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there after the war, there was this great sense of we have to boycott German products. Right. But um, for a lot of Jews, including my family, uh, we never owned Ford vehicles. And that was just something that you didn't do because of Henry Ford's anti-Semitism, because of his promotion of Jew hatred, um, because he, um, he, he got other major industrialists, very, very powerful men to buy into it. And because Ironically, of course, Jews are accused also of, of running um, the media, but it was it was Ford controlling the media who really controlled the the, the message here uh, of Jew hatred. The the power of the protocols of elders of Zion shouldn't be um, underestimated because they still circulate throughout the world today. You don't hear about them as much because. Um, because it's it's tacit rather than overt the way it was a hundred years ago with Henry Ford, but uh, some friends of mine and I were visiting where we were touring Jordan. We were living in Israel for a year. This was back in the mid '90s, hmm. and we were among the first to physically cross the border between Israel and Jordan, like walking across after the um, the peace treaty was signed between Israel and Jordan. And we were in Amman and we were staying in kind of ratty tatty places because we just wanted to sort of do a cheap tour. Um, but we saw amazing things and we, we made our way into one of the four star international hotels that had popped up in Amman. And we were just sort of walking around, taking a look at it and went into the, um, the gift shop just to kind of see what was there. And the protocols of the elders of Zion could be had in probably a half a dozen uh, different languages, including English. Um, and and this, was, this was a nation that had just signed a peace treaty with Israel. And yet even not just in the, in the Christian world, but in the Muslim world of well, as well, this notion of the international Jewish conspiracy is a very, very ingrained um, conspiracy theory and, and, and focus of hatred that continues today. Yeah. And, and the other thing about all these industrialists for the, la- for the preceding 20, um, 30 years, there had been a huge group of industrialists, progressives, and intellectuals who held forth the idea that eugenics was a valid scientific theory that you could literally 
breed the otherness out of the human race by practicing simple animal husbandry. And, you know, you had better baby contests, you had, you know, ideal family contests, you know, where people could be disqualified if they wore glasses, which I guess we'd both be disqualified because we're both wearing glasses. But, um, and this, along with the protocols, was exported to Europe, thanks to the Ford Foundation, thanks to the Rockefeller Foundation, thanks to actual overt American trade agreements. And I have a photograph of the German ambassador to the United States pinning an iron cross on Henry Ford and in his speech, thanking him for all the materials that and the trade that he had done with the fatherland because they had shown the German people the way to solve their problem. That would be not just the Jewish problem, no. but the problem with whoever the other was, yeah. homosexuals, Slovaks. gypsies, Slovaks, um, you know, people, people um, with, um, you know, functionally difficult people with difficulties, people with physical disabilities, mm -hmm. people with mental dis disabilities, anybody who, um, because again, it's it's the Jews' fault. Um, it's it's the 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 pollution of a pure population. Mm -hmm. There was actually a um, immigration ban passed at one point in the United States that defined everyone who came from the Mediterranean and the Middle East as being black. And therefore they were not allowed to enter the country. There was no immigration from Africa, but Italians, Jews, Syrians, Greeks, all these people were defined as being basically black. And therefore that was a reason to ban them from entering the country. So I'd like to skip ahead a little bit if it's all right with you. Um, we won't go into that wonderful time in the 1950s of the McCarthy hearings and another witch hunt. Uh, I'll just point out, and because that's enough for another whole hour-long conversation. But one of the things I'll point out is many of the people who were affected by this were intellectuals, but many of them were also people in slightly more mundane but very influential jobs like newscasters and especially writers and actors in Hollywood. And is there, did those people have anything in common, Audrey? You mean besides the fact that a lot of them were Jewish? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. what you were going for. That's why it was kind yeah. of, yeah. kind of yeah. an yeah. obvious shoe in there. But yeah, yeah. We, maybe, maybe we can have a return sometime uh, and we'll just talk about that because that's a whole different rabbit hole to fall plunge down. It is, but but it's this, it, it happened at the time after World War II, just yeah. as it happened af at World War, after World War I. Mm -hmm. I mean, yep. it was, it was again, that recurring trope. So let's jump ahead to the 1980s and 90s where some of our listeners probably have clear memories, uh, hopefully. Uh, and um, there was a conspiracy theory that swept the country with all kinds of paranoid accusations and an intensity not seen since the good old Salem witch trials. We remember those, of course, from history. Uh, and this was a, a conspiracy that had become known as the satanic ritual abuse or the satanic panic. 
Um, the origins of this thing. Okay, so you have the following things going on. The Vietnam War has ended. The country has celebrated its 200th birthday. Um, we are seeing new threats on the horizon, uh, more threatening postures from Russia, threats from the Middle East. China's not really a threat, but we have this rock, evil rock and roll music, which was attacked you know, throughout the 1950s, uh, turning into heavy metal. And we have the, the advent of something that is everywhere now, which is role-playing games. And of course, we had that old classic, D&D &D or Dungeons and Dragons. So confronted with the societal, oh, and by the way, this is also a time when more and more women were leaving the home for jobs and daycare centers were becoming a necessity. And it was something that became highly politicized. Feminism, of course, became highly politicized. Working women became highly politicized. And just the concept that, you know, if these women would stay at home where they belong, they wouldn't have to put their children in daycare centers became a huge issue back then. So all of this kind of came together. And in 1972, a guy named, excuse me, Mike Warnicke published a book called The Satan Seller. And it had a lot to do with launching this uh, scare. This is also a time when things like um, certain types of evangelical Christian television programming was beginning. The 700 Club was starting during this time period. And so this book by Mike Wernicke played a huge part of getting this whole thing rolling. And he was referenced by as an authority on Satanism uh, until he was exposed as a complete fraud in 1992. Um, but a lot of people chose to believe that the power of Satan was ascended in the world. And there was a lot of this, oh, you know, in a couple of years, it'll be the millennium. And millennial fear is another thing we could do an hour long talk about, because that extends the whole way back to the founding of the current modern calendar. Um, during the late 70s, uh, another guy named John Todd became a brief sensation speaking in fundamentalist churches, claiming that witches, druids, and the Illuminati, wonder who those guys are, were in, in control of world politics, media, and even some, some uh, Christian churches who weren't really Christian. And Todd and his claims were likewise exposed as fraudulent, but other people promoted them. Uh, one of the things I like to collect is a little tiny comic book called a Chick Track. Have you ever seen any of those? Um, yeah, they're, they're pretty interesting. They're beautifully drawn in a comic book style, but they are the most virulent, ultra right-wing conservative view of Christianity you could possibly have. And needless to say, everyone but probably Ch uh, Jack Chick is going to hell in these little comic books. Um, so the scare was, this whole thing was boosted even further with the popularity of a book from 1980 called Michelle Remembers by Michelle Smith, who was an alleged member of a satanic ritual abuse group where they, guess what, murdered babies and drank their blood. And that was exposed as a fraud. But 
This was also the time of hypnoregression therapy, something that we don't use much anymore because they discovered that the hypnotists could implant ideas in people's minds, even not purposefully, and urge them to basically tell the therapist what the therapist believed that they wanted to hear. Um, so you have, you have the DeLon brothers with their playing records backwards, saying there's masks, satanic messages, hidden in rock and roll records. Um, of course, I mentioned Dungeons and Dragons and heavy metal music, but this was a time when there was an outbreak of pet disappearances, cattle mutilations, all kinds of things like that. The whole UFO flap started up again, um, including things, ideas like Satanists are sacrificing these children and their your pets and your cattle off your cattle ranch um they are actually breeding children in children farms to have as sacrifices and there was all kinds of ritual uh, ideas of ritual abuse assaults on children um and it really got worse when law enforcement got involved because these people were going around lecturing on this stuff we're often talking to police unions and police forces in small towns where it was where people you know there's always a crime that happens that you can't solve must be the satanists uh so they took this at face value and there were plenty of therapists who were you know trying to be hip and with it who were practicing hypnotherapy uh and regression therapy without really understanding what they were doing because they were making money on it. And even worse, um, you had the, the media, you had sensationalist stuff like Geraldo Rivera, who never saw a false sensationalist story that he didn't love and promote the heck out of. Uh, you had shows like Sally Jossie Raphael and others where they got people in in the afternoons and to talk about their abuse and they're being kidnapped by aliens and, you know, my husband is also my father and the father of all our children and grandchildren, you know, all kinds of things like that. So it just became this huge, horrifying societal mixture. Um, they said there were families of devil worshipers and they tended to be multi-generational. Teenagers were being supposedly seduced to join satanic cults. You know, there's all kinds of stuff, human sacrifice, Wiccan symbols, Wiccans, that was the time of the rise of, you know, the modern witchcraft movement. So there, anybody who is a neo-pagan has to be satanic. Um, and Wiccan symbols, the pentacle, the pentagram, uh, books on Satan, all this kind of stuff was seen as corrupting our society. And um, Halloween was considered bad. That's when you had the flap of, people putting drugs in children's candies and, and needles and poison and razor blades in children's candy because they were Satanists and they wanted to harm children. Um, even major corporations like Procter and Gamble, you know, they were attacked because they had a quasi mystical looking symbol as on their packaging. Um, they must be Satanists. They were Satanists. Oh, come on. Satanists in Cincinnati, Ohio. Seriously. Yeah, well, 
hey, if it can well, be in the burbs, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, here's what's really interesting about this. It's this cycle that repeated from 500 years before. Yep. You know, this is this is James the first territory. Yep. Yes, when there is. is when there is great upheaval in a society, things are changing, roles are changing, things are opening up for groups that that were not in empowered, that were not supposed to be empowered, right? Right. You know, in in 500 years ago, it might have been you know Jews and other people. In the 80s, it was women who were being in, empowered or empowering mm -hmm. themselves yeah. ourselves. Um, whenever something like that happens, it's like circling the wagons and saying there's an evil presence outside the gate. And we, we, first we have to separate from it and then we have to find ways to destroy it. You know, we're gonna name it and we're gonna destroy it because it's, it's destroying the foundations of what we believe our civilization and our way of life should be. So in the nineties, a group of paranoid and fearful parents brought a backhoe in the middle of the night to the grounds around the McMartin preschool uh, which was in Manhattan Beach, California, and started digging with a backhoe. And what were they digging for? They were going to try to find the tunnels where the children were being kept, who were being groomed and bred for ritual sacrifice. Of course, they didn't find anything. They, they found a dead turtle that somebody had buried in the ground. And that was all the evidence they need. They thought they had proof that there were underground tunnels containing children waiting for human sacrifice because one of the preschool students' mothers, who was later to be discovered as being schizophrenic, she accused her estranged husband and a teacher at the preschool uh, of molesting her child. And suddenly this led to a series of arrests. Everyone connected with the Martin Preschool, McMartin Preschool was arrested, the fam family members, some of the teachers that were there, um, and their lives were completely ruined. Um, and children were brought in who were students there, subjected to hypnotherapy, and a woman who was at that time, turns out, having an affair with the police officer, the detective who was doing most of the investigating, um, put forth all this stuff that these kids were being subjected to ritual abuse. And none of it was true. Um, one of my former lives, I was a museum curator and it was during this time period. And I remember we had a seminar for bringing more art education, especially art history education into the schools. And a high school teacher who will remain nameless sat at my table and said his biggest problem he had with teaching art right now was student portfolio reviews. And I said, well, you know, that's a time to be sensitive and a time to really look at how they're applying what you taught. He said, no, 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 it's not that. I have to go through and take all the red out. I said, what? I mean, I had a glass of wine. It almost came squirting out my nose when he said this. I said, the red out? What are you talking about? He said, yeah, because if they see a lot of red paintings or a lot of use of red in a collage or something or some subject matter that's questionable, they'll think these kids are satanically influenced. I said, mm -hmm. you're an art teacher. You don't believe this, do you? And he just looked at me 
and didn't say another word. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So it they they accused Chuck Norris of being a Satanist. Okay. Chuck Norris. And of course, all the testimony by the kids at the McMartin preschool turned out to be fake. You know, it was, it was basically, yeah, children will never lie. No, children will tell you whatever you want them to tell you because they want to please adults. That's the way most kids are until they get to the, the preteen era and then that goes out the window. But when you're an innocent little child, you know, you kind of read the room and you want to be popular and loved. So when that person's telling you about show me on the doll where the devil touched you, you're going to find a place on the doll. Well, and, and again, that sounds exactly like the witch trials. Mm -hmm. That's what happened in England. That's what happened in Salem. You know, yeah. that, that these children were so caught up in this, in this movement and they, and, and they were under tremendous pressure to name names yeah. and, and, and to rat on like their family members, mm -hmm. their sisters, their mothers, their grandmothers, you know, whoever they thought, okay, I'm going to give names. It's like, it's like giving names. I mean, the other witch trial, of course, that we talked about before was the McCarthy era, mm -hmm. you know, give us names, Name the and, names. We'll, and, and we'll go easy on you. Right. Right. And and that's what you do to try and save yourself. And it yeah. never works. So now we've we've taken this toxic vine and watched it grow all over the place. Uh, we'll get to the kicker. Um, a lot of these beliefs, a lot of these ideas that fueled the satanic panic, that fueled the witch hunts, the communist hunts, the protocols of the elders, all of these things. We now come to today's conspiracy, QAnon. Oh, our absolute favorite. Think about where QAnon started with yeah. Pizzagate. And yeah. let's see if this sounds familiar to First anybody. First outward manifestation. Yep. Yep. The conspiracy theory, follow me with this. You may have heard some of this before, like in the last hour. Sure that the conspiracy theory that Democrats are part of or leading a secret global cabal of pedophile Satanists, mm -hmm. and that Donald Trump has been chosen by God to defeat them. Yes. This has every trope in it possible. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's people sacrificing and eating babies mm -hmm. it's the worship of satan it's you know an international conspiracy the international conspiracy you know it it comes as a jew i see every single trope that comes from 2000 years ago sure just making its way into what we think of as as a normal modern society and and just upending everything and and there's a huge amount of the population that believes it, even though it's clearly insane. It's literally and, the kitchen sink yeah, of conspiracy of theories. Of conspiracy theories. It's like, it's like everything that everybody has ever read in a dark corner of the internet mm -hmm. all rolled into one. Yeah. It is a doozy. And, and it goes 
you know, and and not surprisingly, of course, the Jews are included, right? Oh, George Soros funds all this. Oh my goodness. Okay, so George Soros <laughs> has replaced the Rothschilds, sort of, but not completely, because not completely. the Rothschilds have been, you know, involved in these things too. Yeah. But George Soros is now the source of the international, he's he's the ringleader between, you know, behind the international Jewish conspiracy to inflict unending agony on on white Christianity, um, which is really the basis of all of this. It's it's the poisoning of a pure society, of a pure race by whatever means possible. And these days, Jews do it through using other non-white people. Sure. The the um, the chanting in Charlottesville of Jews will not replace us exactly. is a modern theory of it's a replacement theory that says the Jews, Soros and the like, mm -hmm. are working behind the scenes to replace to pollute and then replace the white race. Mm -hmm. And how does George Soros do this? Well, for instance, George Soros is funding the uh, caravans of brown people who are coming from Central America and trying to crash the what the, the southern border of the United States. Yeah, and, and it's not like there's not drug wars going on there right. with open slaughter of you know innocent people. I mean, who right. wouldn't, who would want to stick around for that? I mean, I, you know. <laughs> well, well, yeah, exactly. But, you know, a, a man who survived the Holocaust and, mm -hmm. and who now spends his money to make the world a better place um, is now blamed for funding the pollution of the white race in America, which of course, in the minds of certain people is a, a country that was based on white male supremacy, mm -hmm. white European male supremacy, mm -hmm. and therefore must always be right. based in white male European supremacy. Right. Um, you know, we've gone through the whole list of the evil people who are trying to destroy that, but the Jews now, of course, are behind it, but they're using brown and black people toward their nefarious ends. The Jews have been trying to do this for 2000 years and by gosh, now they have found their puppets. And, and I don't know if people remember this, but some of us who follow these things do. When, when Barack Obama was running for president, oh yeah, um, there was an, oddly enough, if you don't understand what anti-Semitism is, there was a lot of anti-Semitism about the Jews pushing his nomination. Mm -hmm. And the, the Jews were behind this because after all, a black person is not smart enough to be able to do this on his own. And after he got elected, it was like, see, Rahm Emanuel is his chief of staff. Mm -hmm. That is proof that the Jews are the ones really running this. And they wanted to have a black man in the White House to continue their destruction of this white male Christian it is so, dominated society. It is so virulent. The anti-Semitism, the hatred of Jews, the hatred of African-Americans, of black people, of brown people in general, it's just unbelievable. 
Um, yeah. Uh, <sighs> and that's really what the basis for all of this is, right? Yeah, it exactly. is the It's the demonization of the other. And there, and for some people, there are a lot of others because yeah. the other is anybody who's not you. Right, exactly. And, you know, for those of people who grew up reading comic books, I mean, they've turned poor George Soros. I mean, I understand he's an extremely wealthy man, but to literally be funding every conspiracy theory on the planet, I mean, he's, they've turned him into a combination of Lex Luthor, Dr. Doom, and what, Ernst Blo Stavros Blofeld from the James Bond movies. I mean, it's just, it's appalling. It's absolutely well, with, appalling. With with the exception of Bill Gates, who is not Jewish, who of course is right. being blamed for trying to push vaccines on everybody. 5Gs and, and tags in vaccines. And yeah, I, I, the joke is that the same people who think that Bill Gates wants to put a tracking device in their vaccine so he knows where they are, are researching this on YouTube videos on a holding an electronic device, their cell phone, which tracks every single place they go. And, right. and that's the disconnect. That's the disconnect of the modern world. You know? Well, think, think of how many <laughs> of the insurrectionists who tried to overthrow our government on January 6th mm -hmm. got caught because they were using their cell phones right, exactly. for calls, for selfies, for live Facebook feeds. Mm -hmm. And and yet, you know, it the the disconnect for them doesn't exist. They don't get that. Right. They don't get that at all. Right. This is all part of the I'm a star for a day. I'm a media influencer mindset. You know. Oh, look mm -hmm. at me. Oh, look at me. Oh, I wasn't there. What are you talking about? Suddenly, the whole thing has to shift. So, this has been played up, and there's other people who've laid the groundwork for this. Um, there is our friend from Texas, um, Mr. Jones, uh, who's has never seen a conspiracy theory that he doesn't love. Um, in England, there's a gentleman who's been doing this for about, I'd say, 35, 40 years now. His name's David Icke, with an E. And um, are you familiar with him? He's former soccer player and sportscaster, suddenly had some sort of neurological issue in a hotel room, woke up, thought he was Jesus, and went on the BBC to talk about it on a sports program, got laughed off the air, continued to be laughed at every time he claimed he was the second coming, uh, and then suddenly realized that the voices in his head were lying to him. And those voices were actually the voices of the international intergalactic conspiracy, which controls everything. They're the lizard people who live underground and who disguise themselves as world leaders, like say the royal family are all lizard people. The Rothschilds are all lizard people. Obviously, you know, the Clintons, the Obamas, they're all lizard people. Um, George Soros, Natch has to be a lizard person. And what do lizard people do when they, when they, uh, in their spare time? Well, they worship the devil in their underground caverns. And guess what? They sacrifice children and they drink their blood. I and there we I are again. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. I telegraphed that one from about a hundred miles away. <laughs> uh, but, but that's the issue. This is so obvious that these people are just completely detached from rea the reality that most of us take for granted. They live literally in an alternative universe. But the scary thing is, Michael, that there are so many of them in this country. Yeah. I mean, th the fact that these conspiracy theories have penetrated such a large, I mean, this is not in a little black corner of the internet anymore. This no. has permeated large chunks of our society, large chunks of our population, and increasingly large chunks of the people who are elected to represent us. Yeah. It's, it's terrifying that once we it, have this going on. Once again, it comes down to, I don't like those people. I can't quite figure out why I don't like them, but I just don't like them. And they must be guilty of something truly horrible if so, a nice person like me doesn't like them. And then down the hole, they fall. And they grab onto each route on the way down, which is a different aspect of these big conspiracy theories. And they take it all into themselves and then spew it back out in whatever form it takes. You know, if it's going, loading your pickup truck was full of guns and driving to Washington, D.C. to liberate the children who are being kept in the basement of the pizza parlor, which doesn't have a basement, and it gangs thrown in jail for four or five years, you know, suddenly you get a rude awakening. Um, but yeah, it's, this is frightening. It's, it's scary that um, people believe so much of this and have no other reason to defend it or to actually believe it. It's, but it's, it, it's like they want to believe these things yeah. about the other. I mean, and it's, it's, again, it goes back to the bubonic plague. It's mm -hmm. a way of explaining the unexplainable mm -hmm. or a way of explaining the world that isn't the way you think it ought to be. Yeah, it's magical thinking. And that's, mm -hmm. that's a term that's really well selected, magical thinking. It's like that famous poster from the X-Files. I want to yeah. believe. I want to believe. Yeah. Well, when you think about when the X-Files, I was thinking about this, we were talking mm -hmm. earlier, when you think about when the X-Files came out, yes. it was in the wake of everything you were talking about in the yep. 80s. Mm -hmm. And that was one way to explain the unexplainable. Yeah. It's a conspiracy. It's aliens. It's governmental officials who want to survive the alien invasion. It's, it's Pizzagate. It's QAnon. It's the satanic panic. It's alien abductions. It's all these things rolled into one. And yep. it, where does it find its origin point? The blood libel. Yep. Audrey, this and was wonderful. This was, wow, what a great conversation. We always have good conversations, but this is this is right up there, Michael. This is important. I think this is really it is important. important. I mean, we, we we do a lot of frivolous things on here, but we try to do some things that have some resonance uh, and are and are maybe open some eyes and 
hopefully this this will be eye-opening. So coming up next uh, in a, a couple of weeks after this one comes out, we're going to look at another briefly look at another mystery. We're going to explore the mystery of the Toynbee tiles. Yeah. I'm going to tune in on that. Okay. Well, we'll be glad to have you tuning in. Listen, <laughs> thank you so much, Audrey. This has thank been you. great. Uh, this is Mike Allison and Rabbi Audrey. We're signing off. Well, that's all for today's episode. We're dedicated to featuring great stories and great conversations. And we love our listeners. If you have a story you'd like us to tell or one you'd like to hear us explore, leave us a message on our Facebook page and give us a like at the podcast about everything. We're a podcast available on Anchor, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and most of the places where you can go to hear podcasts. Our theme music is by Tim Moore, courtesy of Pixabay. Pixabay.com is a great source for royalty-free images and music. This is Mike Allison signing off. Be safe and be well, everybody.